The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When we did run into a barrier with one broker that we could not get around by being broad or just by declining a phone call, there was almost always another broker who had similar data, similar data fields. So those cracks in the ecosystem were pretty easy to find and still obtain this data. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 16th, 2023. On November 6th, researchers at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy issued a report on data brokers and the sale of data on U.S. military personnel that illuminates the national security risks arising from the sale of these data. I sat down with three of the report's authors, Justin Sherman, a senior fellow at the Sanford School of Public Policy who leads its data brokerage research project, Haley Barton, a Master of Public Policy and Master of Business Administration student at Duke University and former research assistant on Duke's data brokerage research project, and Grady Allen Cruz, a Master of Public Policy student at Duke University and research assistant on Duke's data brokerage research project. We talked about the kinds of data that data brokers collect and sell about U.S. military personnel, the national security risks created by these practices, and the gaps in the law that enable this activity. We also discussed policy recommendations for the U.S. federal government to address the risks associated with data brokerage and the sale of data on former and active duty U.S. military personnel. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 16th, Data Brokers and the Sale of Data on U.S. Military Personnel. What are data brokers and how should we think about the data broker ecosystem? Data brokers are companies that are primarily defined by the practice of collecting and aggregating and inferring and then selling data. The sale is really the key piece here. And so this ecosystem is based around companies that identify buyers in the government or the private sector or individuals who want to buy access to data. That's maybe health data, financial data, location data. It could be data related to credit score. And so this is a really expansive ecosystem, a multi-billion dollar ecosystem, and uh, plenty of companies that are not often thought of as third-party data brokers 
or are not third parties are also involved in this practice of selling data to these companies. So plenty of mobile apps sell information about their own users, whether people realize it or not. That's how a lot of health and location data becomes available for sale. Plenty of retailers sell data on their own uh, customers. So the list goes on, but it's, it's quite an expansive ecosystem. And again, the sale of data is really the defining feature. So Justin, you talked about that there are companies that we may know essentially and others we may not know that are part of the data brokerage ecosystem. What are some of the companies that sell or broker data that our listeners might be familiar with? There are the main consumer credit reporting agencies, so Equifax and and TransUnion and so forth that sell information about people's loans and credit history and things of that nature. Those companies are data brokers, and most of us are, are pretty familiar with those. And if you're not familiar with those companies, you do actually have some federal rights around that data, such as being able to view the data and correct the data if it's wrong. So credit reporting agencies are data brokers that many consumers are familiar with. And then on the other end of the spectrum, right, moving away from these large companies that sell things like credit data at scale are people search data brokers. And uh, I, I encourage folks uh, to listen. We, we actually just taped uh, a, a separate podcast about that. But these are the white pages websites or background check websites that might pop up online when you type in a name. And they're really advertised as a way for individuals to spend $10, $20, uh, $30 to purchase information on that could be a, a, a date off of a dating app or a potential new hire. Uh, and so those companies like Spokio uh, and whitepages.com are others that some, some listeners may be familiar with. And just to clarify, Justin, you indicated that you taped another Lawfare podcast and, and that podcast, as I understand it, specifically talked about data that had been used or, or is used by stalkers and, and the privacy and security problems attendant to that. It did, yes. There have been, uh, as we talked about at length there, and, and there's a lawfare piece I've written as well about this, there have been decades of stalking and gendered violence incidents primarily impacting, of course, women and black women and LGBTQ people, where people have bought home address and, and other data. So certainly encourage folks to, to check that out as well. And is it fair to say that the US data brokerage system contains data on all or nearly every American? I think it's fair to say that every or nearly every American interacts with the data brokerage ecosystem in some way. As Justin mentioned, the big three credit reporting agencies fall under our definition of data brokers, and they have massive amounts of data. If you have a credit check run, if you get a background check, you are interacting with a data broker and they have your personal information. There are also lots of other ways that our data is collected that we may not even be aware of or aware that we're consenting to. For example, a lot of Data brokers, including location data brokers, use something called SDKs or software development kits, 
uh, within mobile apps that allow them to track your location or information about you when you use that app. So we know that data brokerage is a multi-billion dollar industry. And even if we don't always know exactly which data are out there about which individual, I think it's fair to say that all or nearly all Americans have data out there about them with a data broker in some form or another. And one thing that I think is interesting is that we did this study related to U.S. military personnel, but we could have done it related to many other groups, as you mentioned briefly already, for example, survivors of domestic violence, or there has been some research and reporting out there about data brokers collecting and selling location data on women in reproductive health clinics. So there are a lot of different groups that we could have done this for. Um, we just chose military personnel in this instance, but there is a lot of data out there about every American. To kind of build off of that, Haley hinted at, we all interact with data brokers, even if we take reasonable steps not to, right? So some SDK code level stuff is hidden in like a flashlight app that has no business collecting your location data, but still was because it was deeply hidden within the code. There are terms within privacy policies that no reasonable person can read before signing up for a service. Even if you live completely off the grid, you use a burner phone, you distrust every computer you see, if you got a loan, if you purchased a car, you're interacting with a credit reporting agency, which falls under our definition of data brokerage. So it's, it's very hard for consumers to not participate in this ecosystem, um, even if they're aware that this ecosystem exists, which many consumers don't, they have no idea that this is happening. As I think the conversation has illustrated so far, you all have been researchers in other data broker studies. But as Haley, you noted in this particular study, you focus on the collection and sale of data about U.S. military personnel. Can you talk about why you undertook this specific study? What specific questions were you interested in answering and what gap in knowledge did this study seek to fill? We undertook this study really for, I think, two reasons. You know, one is that in our research program on data brokers at Duke, we focus on a bunch of different impacts and risks to include, as mentioned, physical uh, and, and personal violence, civil rights and freedoms issues around, you know, law enforcement and things of that nature, as well as issues like national security. And so, that has always been an interest for our research team. And uh, the real catalyst, the second reason for, for launching this study was a couple of years ago, one of the first reports we had put out included a finding that a number of the large data brokers in the US were advertising data about military personnel. So, you know, I wrote the study. It was like, okay, this is, this is interesting. And so that kind of led to the question of what kind of data is collected and sold by these data brokers about active duty military service members as well as veterans. And then with that national security lens applied, what is the risk that a foreign actor could potentially access that data for nefarious purposes or purposes that would uh, adversely impact national security? And, you know, we, we, 
did this in that way as sort of a risk assessment, right? Because we have clearly seen through countless at this point news articles, breaches, uh, indictments, and so on that uh, foreign states these days have a very high interest in collecting data about U.S. clearance holders, people in the government, people in the military, the Office of Personnel Management hack from uh, a few years back underscored this, as did uh, the 2017 hack of Equifax. Uh, And Equifax is a data broker, and they were hacked by Chinese military-linked hackers. And so we know that there's this foreign interest in getting access to all kinds of U.S. data, and we really wanted to see, okay, well, if we go through this exercise as researchers, what can we get and what does that say about the broader risk that a foreign actor could undertake the same process to get that data about military service members? I think it's also worth mentioning, speaking of gaps in knowledge, one unique thing that this team does is actually purchase the data. We learned a lot through the purchasing process, our interaction with the brokers, their internal marketing materials that they sent to us that can't really be gleaned just from doing searching online and trying to write about these brokers. Actually getting the data in hand is something that the Duke team does very uniquely and is a very informative process. So Brady, I really want to talk about the process that you all went through and how you purchased data from brokers and what you learned. And I think it's important to indicate from the outset, that your study actually proceeded in four different phases, scraping data from broker websites, buying service members' data, which occurred in two different phases, and then analysis of the data purchased. And I want to talk about each of these phases. Let's start with the first, scraping data broker websites. What was the objective of that phase, and how did you proceed? Absolutely. So before diving in, it might be useful to define what web scraping is for viewers. Uh, That's kind of a weird term. Uh, It doesn't make a lot of sense. Scraping is actually a technical term, and it essentially boils down to the automated process of collecting information from web pages. So data brokers engage in web scraping. One of the common use cases is a social media profile. So looking at that, you can get someone's name, probably the region they live in, maybe their occupation, And web scraping automates this process and kicks it out into a standardized format. Um, Web scraping can be done very quickly. So you can get thousands of data points on thousands of people very quickly and into a standard format that the data can then be used. So early on in this project, as we were doing some exploratory work, we had this kind of funny idea of why don't we try scraping the data brokers websites themselves? Because in the past, when we would do this kind of investigative work, we did it manually. We would search online, we would click down endless links, and that just isn't scalable to hundreds of data brokers and websites that can have hundreds of pages. You just can't cover the whole ecosystem. So the goal of this web scraping exercise is to provide a more formal answer to two main questions. One, how common are certain categories of data relative to others? And two, How easy is it to find this data for sale online? There are two states that mandate a list of data broker registries. So we started by downloading those, combining them, removing the overlap, and we had 533 data broker websites. And then I put my computer science degree to work. We created a web scraping tool that accesses these websites, downloads them, and then searches the source code for key terms. 
So Duke has a lot of different data brokerage work streams. So our key terms varied a lot. For our purposes, we had things like military or veteran, but we also have results for terms like elder or pregnant, which represent some other data broker work streams at Duke. So the bot goes through these websites and it counts up how many hits for each key term on every website. This took about a month. It's a ton of data. It's millions of lines of code. And when the results finally popped out, we really weren't that surprised. Military and veteran were far and away the most common key terms. And we later confirmed this by actually purchasing the data. This data is widely available. Almost every broker, if not every broker we contacted, knew about military and veteran data. This was not unfamiliar for them. So these results informed our own data buying process. And now we have at least a more formal idea of what kinds of data are common relative to others and how easy it is to find. And when you have thousands of hits across hundreds of data broker websites, it's really not that difficult to find military data online. And then there's one other thing to mention. The bot also saves the context. So the sentence or the line of code that a key term pops up in. And so looking through this, we can also get some really kind of surprising insights into how data brokers operate, right? A lot of this saved context makes sense on the surface. One of the phrases was veterans that own a motorcycle mailing list. Okay, clearly that's a data set for sale on a pretty key target audience of veterans that own a motorcycle. We also found advertising blogs on those background check websites we mentioned. Pretty deep on one of their websites, they mentioned the uh, ability to potentially find a deceased veteran's claim or discharge number by searching through death records. Another line of code was like a database request, which was very strange. And when we dug into it deeper, we found out that this broker's website maintains a database of healthcare providers and one of the specialties is elder care. So that lets us know that not only are brokers collecting and selling data on elders, there's also data on the elders' healthcare providers. So all in all, is a very informative activity for both exploratory reasons and more insights that we can glean that we would never have been able to do manually. So let's talk about the phases of the study that involved the actual purchase of service members' data one which involved the use of a U.S. IP address and one which involved the use of an IP address from Singapore, as I understand it. How did these phases proceed and what were some of the interesting issues that emerged as you attempted to purchase data from 12 brokers and actually purchase data from three brokers, as I understand it? So we actually gleaned a lot of interesting insights from the purchasing process itself, not only from the actual data that we were able to purchase. And one of the things that we wanted to measure was how data brokers would react to an entity that wasn't previously known to them. So when we went about purchasing data, we actually set up new phones. We used wiped Chromebooks for purchasing data. We set up a new email domain. And as you mentioned, we used IP addresses associated with the US and Singapore that were specific. So we could monitor where our emails and messages were coming from to those data brokers. We didn't use deception about who we were, but we also didn't outright say that we were researchers from Duke unless we were prompted because we really wanted to see to what extent these data brokers would attempt to verify us in the process. So we had to do a decent amount of setup prior to purchasing data so that we could maintain that 
somewhat some level of anonymity in that initial reach out. So we ended up purchasing some feature phones, which we you can read more about it in our report, but we went to pretty great lengths to obscure our identities when we were purchasing those so that we could have new phone numbers to use. And we also set up new email accounts and email domains, one for our US research and one for the Singapore research. And once we had all of that set up, we decided to reach out to 12 data brokers. These were primarily ones that we had found through the web scraping, as Brady mentioned, or ones that were previously known to our team. And we generally reached out to them either via email or through some kind of contact form on their website, just explaining that we were interested in doing market research and learning more about the data they had for sale related to military service members. Once we had reached, made that initial reach out, we experienced a wide variety of different contact from the data brokers. And I think one word that I think kind of summarizes what we saw in this process was inconsistency because it really varied a lot how much brokers attempted to verify who we were or what kinds of questions they asked us as we were going through that purchasing process. So that's something that was very interesting to note. In particular, the level of verification, as I mentioned, was quite different among the different brokers. A couple of them explained that they were only willing to sell data to quote unquote verified entities or other businesses. They were a business to business platform. And so those were not ones that we were able to end up purchasing from. However, there were also ones who did not have much verification. One broker asked initially to verify our identity over the phone, but then said we could skip that identity verification process if we paid with a wire transfer instead of a credit card. So that showed that their verification process was more related to getting paid rather than our identity and what we might be planning to use the data for. So we found that to be really interesting. Around half of the data brokers that we contacted wanted to have a phone call with us to discuss moving forward with the data purchase, which we did have with some data brokers. And those calls seemed to serve a dual purpose of them learning more about who we were, but also providing sales and marketing information about their services. Of those data brokers, we ended up purchasing from three, um, none of whom we had a call with. We also uh, had some brokers who wanted us to sign an NDA prior to purchasing data. We didn't purchase from any of those brokers. And we also had some variations in the type of data available and the cost of the data. So everything varied quite widely among those 12 brokers. As I mentioned, we ended up narrowing it down to three that we decided to purchase from based on the cost and the type of data that was available and the lack of relative barriers that there were to us purchasing or attempts to verify purchasing of the data. We did all of this process first on the US side. So we reached out to the 12, we went through this process, we chose three that we were going to purchase data from. And then uh, I think we'll talk more about what we found when analyzing the data later, but we did a similar process with a Singapore IP address and using a different domain name with a .asia um, so that we could see whether there would be a different reaction to an unknown entity reaching out from a Singapore IP address. 
And what we found was that there was very little difference. We reached out to some of the same brokers, including the three that we purchased data from on the U.S. side and did not receive additional pushback or questioning about what our purpose was, et cetera. So that was one interesting finding is that there did not seem to be much difference in treatment between on the U.S. side versus on the Singapore side trying to purchase these data sets. One other thing that I should mention is that a couple of the data brokers did ask us to provide some kind of mailing material or marketing piece that we were planning to use when reaching out to the folks on these lists of data. We actually were able to get around that for one of the brokers by just saying that we weren't planning to reach out to the people on the list, which for all they knew may or may not have been consistent with our intentions. So we definitely found a lot of interesting things in the purchasing process when we were reaching out, wide variety in attempts to verify our identity and verify the potential use of the data, as I mentioned, even when asking about these very specific and identifiable data sets about U.S. military. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I'm curious, what was the cost of these data sets? In a word, cheap. The data, we got some data for as little as 12 cents per record. So when we say record, we're referring to um, an individual. Overall, we spent $6,931.69 from the .org domain, and we purchased 34,951 identified personal contact records. From the .asia domain, we purchased 15,048 records for a total cost of $3,362. So a couple things to pick up on there. First of all, for approximately just over $10,000, if my mental math checks out, we got almost 50,000 records of service members and veterans, which is deeply unsettling. On average, 20 cents per record from the U.S. domain and 22 cents per record from the .asia domain. So it's very, very cheap. And we didn't notice a really quantifiable difference in pricing schemes, depending on which domain we contacted from. Uh, many of the differences in pricing and some of the fields available to us seem to depend more on what salesperson we interacted with rather than some kind of internal controls with some, with some exceptions. So you all had the opportunity to then examine and analyze these data sets. So what kind of information about military personnel was contained in the data sets? Yeah, so all of the data sets had one thing in common, which was it was all contact data. It was identifiable by name, by address, by email, um, a few phone numbers. 
we were looking for data fields that would be considered sensitive, right? Those seem to pose the greatest risk to national security. And we didn't have a formal definition of sensitive, but I think many of the things we purchased would be considered sensitive to a reasonable person. So we were able to purchase the specific branch or the agency that the military service member was a part of. We purchased medical ailments, which was absolutely shocking that we could get access to that. So there were 15 different conditions, including Alzheimer's, heart problems, asthma, bladder control, many, many, many others. We purchased political affiliation, gender, age, income, net worth, credit rating, even things like occupation of children in the home, estimated ages of children in the home. So not only was this data on the service members, it also sometimes bled over into families. So we were really surprised by the availability, the wide number of fields that were available to us, and also the fact that we could purchase this with very little verification or know your customer controls. And picking up on something Haley mentioned earlier, the inconsistency, that's a, it's a great way to phrase it because when we did run into a barrier with one broker that we could not get around by being broad or just by declining a phone call, there was almost always another broker who had similar data, similar data fields. So those cracks in the ecosystem were pretty easy to find and still obtain this data. So Brady, what you've described, I would agree, is extremely concerning. I, I assume there are additional areas or points of concern because of the kinds of things that could be inferred from these data sets on top of the very sensitive information that is just directly available when you examine them. Absolutely. So inferring is is a, a good term. Typically, when I think of inferring, I think of re-identifying a data set. So the data we purchased was all identifiable. So we didn't even have to go through the steps. But let's say that the data set was quote unquote anonymized, which typically means they removed the name. It's not that hard to glean or infer who this person is based on this wide variety of data fields. Like I said, we didn't even have to do that because this all came with name and address. But I did want to mention that that when you have this many fields, there's not too many people who satisfy all of the different data fields that we have. So that's one method of, of inference. Um, but there are certainly other things. So a lot of the data fields seem to be some level of inference happening by the data broker already. There were some fields that were denoted like inferred or something of that nature. We're not quite sure how the data brokers are doing that, but apparently they feel comfortable enough about their inference process that they'll still sell the data. We found a data field labeled casino, which we think could infer to an interest in gambling. And when we think about risk to national security and potential malicious use of this data, many of these data sets can certainly be combined. So maybe someone who has an interest in casino, and we also have some financial data on them, maybe we know that that person is uh, experiencing financial troubles and thus susceptible to some kind of phishing scam or some kind of blackmail. So a lot of the inferring is thinking about how can these data fields be combined to cause malicious intent or to pose risk to national security. Now, given that this is not the first study involving the practices of data brokers that you all have conducted, what, if anything, was new to you or perhaps confirmed some of your other insights about data broker practices? 
It's a good question. It's also an interesting question. What uh, does or does not uh, surprise or shock me at this point. But I think as uh, Haley and Brady mentioned, there were findings in this study that were newer and there were findings in the study that build out on issues we've already looked at. So in the former case, there were findings around just how cheap the data is and confirming that it is in fact this cheap to go out and buy, as has been mentioned, service members' names, information about their children and their religious practices, their finances, and so forth. It also has been the case in some of our past work that we have seen some data brokers want uh, prospective customers to sign non-disclosure agreements uh, before they uh, engage in conversation. And so, as Hilly said, we did not sign any of those NDAs because we, of course, as researchers, want to be able to publish our findings. But uh, something I think that was uh, interesting in this case was seeing how NDAs are not just something that a data broker might compel somebody to sign after they've purchased data. This could be even before you get on the phone with them. They want to have you sign a non-disclosure agreement. And that's significant because at that point, you know, there 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 arguably is perhaps some level of interest in, you know, proprietary business practices and so forth. But a lot of these companies are at a high level engaged in a, in in similar uh, practices around aggregation and sale of data and so what i think that really gets down to is that when you contact a data broker uh, sometimes as we did you will get back a giant list of different characteristics uh, and as as brady said we picked from that to purchase the data we did but we got pdfs with hundreds and hundreds of different types of data points about someone's demographics and lifestyle and interests and beliefs and purchases. And and so NDAs are a way for uh, brokers to limit what people can learn about what the broker even has, let alone what they sell. So those were some of the, the newer findings. And then other findings sort of built on what we've looked at before, such as around the inconsistency in vetting prospective customers and the fact that data brokers might claim that all data they hold is quote unquote anonymized and without even getting into the overuse of of that term and the warping of that term, there's plenty of data as we found that is already clearly individually linked to specific people, uh, including by name. And so the risks are, are really outsized there. So, you know, to zoom out, right, as Haley had said from the outset, we could have done this study and have other studies coming out that are on other demographics. We could have done this study on any number of populations, including with a focus on federal employees or defense contractors or uh, potentially even intelligence personnel. And so, you know, those kinds of, of risks that we found in this case, I think, plug into that broader body of work about this ecosystem and its, its risks and harms. Now, you all have touched on this a bit already, but since this is a study about data available on U.S. service members, I do want to talk about some of the study's implications and takeaways with respect to national security. Can you talk about some of those issues? Yes. So as 
Brady mentioned, one of the things that's particularly powerful about this is when a lot of different information can be aggregated, and particularly when that is information that was not previously publicly available. So for example, it might be possible to look in the public domain and find names of U.S. military service members or more information about their voter records or other sorts of things. However, more sensitive information about their health conditions or financial information or families or various data variables that we were able to purchase is not readily available out there in the public domain. And so having this broad set of data aggregated and available for purchase introduces a lot of potential concerns. And when it comes to U.S. military personnel, those include national security concerns. For instance, data related to income level, sexual orientation, health conditions, etc., could potentially be used to expose sensitive information about military personnel or government officials to micro-target them with disinformation, attempt to radicalize subgroups, or to try to blackmail and coerce them. We did not attempt in our study to try to quantify what exactly the level of that risk is, but I think we demonstrated that because of the lack of verification that we experienced and the relative ease with which we were able to purchase data, that there is a risk that this sensitive data could be acquired by foreign or malign actors. It's particularly concerning when it comes to this sensitive data. We did not purchase more granular location data, but that is another area that gets a lot of discussion. For example, foreign or malign actors could use location data to stalk or track high-profile targets, including to sensitive locations, or to follow them as they move about their daily lives. And this includes people who might have sensitive information, officials with security clearances, etc., and so the fact that all of this information is out there is definitely concerning and could be damaging to U.S. national security if it were to fall in the wrong hands. And I think we demonstrated that it would be pretty easy for some of these actors to obtain this data. They could set up some sort of email or IP address or something as we did, or it could, even if it's purchased somewhere and then gets passed up the chain to some of these actors, the fact that this data is out there and circulating and available for purchase on the open market is definitely concerning. And it seems as if the military is starting at least to pay attention to this. I write that West Point, the United States Military Academy, actually funded this particular study. Yes, uh, this was was funded um, through a, a Defense Department grant via West Point. So certainly, Plenty of, of scholars there who have not, you know, not done this particular study before, of course, but have written about these kinds of problems before. And without getting too specific, we have been having a number of interesting conversations and briefings in the lead up to the release of the report. And since it's come out just recently about this within the national security community, and there certainly is, or I hope there is, right, growing attention to these risks. Now, you all are certainly not the first to say that there are gaps in the law that facilitate the data brokerage ecosystem and the privacy and national security risks that flow from that ecosystem and the practice of data brokers. So let's assume, at least for the moment, that comprehensive privacy legislation out of Congress is unlikely to pass 
in the near future. Is there more targeted legislation that has been drafted or introduced at the federal level that would address the national security risks and harms that surround data brokers' collection and sale of data on U.S. military personnel? I'll I'll spare a heavy sigh at the privacy uh, law taking a long time comment. Um, Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there is legislation, which is something we recommend in our report, that's been introduced in Congress that focuses more on the national security risk piece. And I think that's actually, you know, as we, if we step back a, a completely strong and comprehensive way to think about this is that we, we need the baseline security and privacy controls for all companies. And then in certain cases, certain kinds of practices or perhaps certain companies from certain countries and so on may be subject to additional controls due to security risks. So uh, one such piece of legislation is a bipartisan bill from Senator Bill Cassidy and Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, called the Protecting Military Service Members Data Act. This bill from the past Congress would focus on, in particular, data brokers selling data about U.S. military personnel to certain foreign countries, including China and trying to address the national security risks of that data activity. I think that's a good, you know, it's a very good bill. Um, At the same time, our report, I think, underscores how that kind of approach needs to be broadened further. Because if you look at uh, what Brady had mentioned about what we purchased, you could say, we're going to prohibit the sale of data in X case about U.S. military personnel. Okay, well, what about their children? Okay, well, we'll include their children. Well, what about their spouses? Okay, well, we'll include their spouses. What about their non-married partners or their acquaintances, right? So you you quickly sort of realize that if you're trying to limit data sale where it concerns national security risks, counterintelligence threats, and and, and similar issues, you can't just focus on one specific population because again, you know, folks have already uh, asked me, rightfully so, couldn't you do the same set of recommendations for all federal employees or for people in the defense space? Uh, and the answer is certainly yes. So it's a good bill, but you know, we also need to think about a broader approach. The, on- the, the other bill I'll mention is a bill that Senator Ron Wyden has written, uh, and, and Senator Wyden and his team have done years and years and years of work on, on data brokers uh, and a lot of great stuff there. Uh, he, he has a bill out that would take more of an export control focused approach to this question and attempt to limit the extent to which U.S. companies are allowed to export bulk personal data uh, or, or a ter- I forget the exact term, but I think that is the exact term, you know, limiting companies' ability to do that and, and doing that with a national security lens to say, okay, well, perhaps there's high level aggregated population statistics that some company is selling to a marketer in Europe. Maybe we don't really care about that, but maybe there's some activity to China or to Hong Kong or to Russia or to elsewhere that's concerning. And so uh, to crack down on that. But again, I would just stress, um, you know, all jokes aside that this report really does underscore the need for that comprehensive approach and the need to also think about our lack of a privacy law as a national security problem. 
So what other recommendations would you make that don't require congressional action to address the national security issues that you've discussed? So I think we can start with the Department of Defense. We oftentimes aren't sure how brokers receive this information, but one possible avenue is through contracts with the Department of Defense. And I I don't necessarily mean with brokers specifically, but maybe that privatized on-base housing provider is also collecting and selling data to a data broker on the side. I don't think that such an assessment has been done. And if anything, that can make sure that there are no gaps or leaks or whatnot, that this data is flowing out through contracts that the Department of Defense has created. And in the future, absolutely reserve those rights to restrict a contractor's sale of military data. As the Department of Defense continues to create contracts, um, there are certain controls you can put in there to restrict sale, to use screening protocols for the sale of data, lots of lots of opportunities there to prevent just any person from a random domain being able to purchase this data. Also, regulatory agencies are very useful here. So the FTC has done some work in this field already. I know that the Kochava location data broker um, documents were unsealed yesterday. So lots of news or a couple of days ago. So lots of news stories about that. And this very case-by-case approach to just egregious, uh, unfair, deceptive business is positive, but the FTC can also implement rules and go through their rulemaking process. Things like preventing the re-identification of data unless the individual explicitly provides very informed consent. Those are rules that the FTC um, potentially has the power to implement right now. And outside of rules, Data broker investigations are hard. Um, Data brokers do a really good job at hiding their activities. So these agencies can also just help us investigate. Making requests for the prevalence and development of SDKs, making requests for how some of these inferred data points uh, get pinned down and decided upon, how brokers re-identify seemingly anonymous data, all those things would be extremely useful to help our research and other researchers. And then finally, I think that the advocacy work that we're doing right now is very important. Making people aware of these companies and informing them on data collection methods that we know about really helps consumers control their own data. Maybe someone listens to this podcast and they live in California and they go through the delete act to remove their data from data brokers. I've told my grandmother to delete certain apps on her phone and be careful about installing random browser extensions. Most people just aren't aware that this ecosystem exists. And if they were, I think they would want to stop the flow of their data or at the very least have some control over it. So I think that that's something that we as researchers can continue to do. Anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? There are maybe three final things that I would kind of say as a wrap up that I don't know if we fully touched on. One thing is that I think we found the hardest part of this process and purchasing data was actually setting up our own infrastructure. So we were creating new email addresses and purchasing new phones and devices and things like that. And I think that was actually harder than purchasing data from a data broker. So that kind of goes to show just how easy and straightforward this process is, even for a purchaser who isn't kind of forthright with their identity. And then secondly, I would say all of this 
was legal. We weren't doing anything that was illegal. These data brokers are not illegally selling this information. This is a legal business practice in the United States. And thirdly, I think the level of bipartisan support for legislation and other solutions for this problem is very significant. And as Justin mentioned, a lot of the legislation that's around this topic is bipartisan. I think people look at this issue, look at our report and see it's pretty clear that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. So hopefully there will able to be some movement around it from stemming from this type of research. And I'll add in one, one thought I also keep coming back to is the way that we purchase data, we should have set off so many alarm bells right? We're emailing from domains that are unverified and have broad names. We have a Google voice number. We have a dot Asia website that just broadly says we do data market research. And some brokers were, you know, hesitant and maybe ceased contact with us, but a lot either did not realize that this was something to be concerned about or just did not care. And so I keep thinking if a foreign adversary wanted to do this and take advantage of this risk, we didn't use deception. We were intentionally broad and never tried to pretend that we were a different entity. But a foreign adversary who is not bound by those IRB protocols, they don't even have to use deception. They can just do exactly what we did. And apparently brokers, apparently this does not raise alarm bells within their internal controls. So that's also something to think about is just how prevalent this risk is, is that we were able to do it and we had controls on us for deception and, and what we could do. And a foreign adversary won't. So we'll have to leave it there today. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies and the Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.